Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, our text will be verses 1 to 8 of God's holy word. We are still in the midst of Paul indicting both Jews and Gentiles as being lawbreakers and deserving of God's righteous judgment. He spent most of chapter 2 speaking to the Jews and really showing much of the inadequacy of the Mosaic Covenant. That simply by keeping uh, the, the law itself or attempting to keep the law, going through the motions of worship, having circumcision, simply being called by uh, the name Jew does not mark anyone safe from God's wrath. That was much of what he had written in chapter 2, again showing the inadequacy of the Mosaic Covenant because by the works of the law, none will be saved. He's going to reiterate this. And later on, he's going to make this very clear that it's only through Christ, that having the law does not exempt one from judgment. Having the covenant signed does not ensure salvation. You know, simply because you have the covenant signed does not mean anything unless it is, unless it is done in, 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 by faith, that you're walking by faith. The Jews had viewed the covenant that God had entered into into with them as as a gracious covenant no doubt but believed that it was maintained by the works of the law in order to be saved and that was understood when we turned to acts chapter 15 last week to see that even those jews that were saved that were converted to christ were were saying at the jerusalem council that the gentiles need to be circumcised if they are going to be saved and Paul says some very extraordinary things as he is bringing that particular section to a close in chapter 2, or that particular argument rather, by saying that even, that even the uncircumcised man, the Gentile who does not have the covenant sign, is counted as a Jew because he, is, he has the circumcision of the heart. So in, doing, in, in saying things like that, that simply having the law does nothing, you're still breaking the law. Having circumcision does nothing because you don't have the inward circumcision of the heart, which is done by the Spirit of God, as he says at the end of chapter 2. Now, in light of this, the apostle anticipates some questions. He anticipates some criticisms, and these particular things that he is writing here are things that no doubt he has heard throughout his 20-plus years uh, ministering and evangelizing, especially of those who are by nature Israel, Jews. These are the things perhaps that they have brought up. These are things that he's addressing now because they, they're not new arguments for him. And he really begins on touching at the very, the very center of some of the things that he will go over later in the book of Romans. In chapter 6, he will address these things. Chapters 9, especially chapters 9 through 11, he will address the criticisms that are rendered here. He really, he anticipates here some of the things, again, he'll, he'll expound on later more fully, but really, here's the question. In light of what you're saying, Paul, Paul, if you are saying that we're Jews, we're the covenant people, and yet we're still not marked safe, even though we have the law and we have circumcision, then what's the advantage? Why? What's the, what's the blessing here? What's the advantage for us? 
And so he anticipates questions about Israel's special status as God's covenant people and also the criticisms that are leveled against him of antinomianism. Now remember, the Jews are the legalists. The Jews are saying, you must, you must, you must. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. And so what's, what's the criticism then? You're an antinomian. You're against the law. You have no law. And that's why when you're reading, in, 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 especially in verses 5 uh, through 8, these are some difficult passages here to, to understand the flow of thought. But that's why he, he says uh, in those particular verses that he slandered for, for claiming, uh, let us do evil that good may come. And Paul is addressing this. This is not what we're saying. This is, this is a distortion of what the gospel actually teaches. Now, what he does begin to hit on here, which is elaborated on later in chapter 9 especially, is the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Because that's part of the backdrop of what he is addressing here in these chapters, or in these verses that we're going over today. The dilemma of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So he touches on it here. He gives us a little bit of a taste. He's going to elaborate on it later more fully. But this is why he's elaborating on it later, because of the questions that are coming now. So as we work our way through this passage, keep in mind, again, he's addressing uh, the, the, the nation itself, the Jews, the covenant people of God who were elected by God. But he's also making it very clear that they still have a moral responsibility to God to walk in faith. That's the backdrop of what we are going over here. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll read Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unjust or unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning and we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would open our minds to the scripture, that we would be able to understand, Father, this portion of your word, to understand, Father, that it's all by grace and it's all through faith. There are no works that we can do. There are no acts that we can perform, rights to perform. We recognize that salvation is by your sovereign hand. You do all your good pleasure. 
Father, let us, let us indeed be grateful for our salvation. May the Spirit of God produce in us such thanks to you for the grace and mercy we've received in your Son. Father, bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. For in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so here's the first question. Here's what Paul anticipates. What about Israel's special status? What's the advantage? What's the advantage of being a Jew? Okay, Paul, if, if we are Jews by nature, we, we have the covenant sign, we have the law, we're teachers of the law, we're teaching, we're teaching others about the very character of God as we are expounding the law, and yet you say that that isn't good enough. So what's the advantage? Did not God promise through Abraham that his descendants uh, would be blessed, not only the nations, but his descendants, and, and God would be their God? So, so what of it? How, how, how do you say these things? Now imagine for the Jew. Again, they, they are those that, that, have, that have knowledge of the law, and by having knowledge of the law, they have a knowledge of uh, a more special knowledge of God, a more direct knowledge of God than any other nation, any other people. And so they're keeping the law. They're striving to do the things in the law as a means, as a means of gaining favor with God. Paul comes along and says, it's not good enough. Because you're still breaking the law of God. It doesn't matter that you're striving to do these things. Or that you think that you're accomplishing something by, by having your check marks, checking off everything that you've been doing. That's not good enough. Because you're still committing the same things that you agree that God will judge the Gentiles for. You do the same. How then do you exempt yourself from being under the righteous judgment of God? Okay, so Paul, what's the advantage? You're saying that even the covenant people who are physically circumcised need a circumcision of the heart that is done by the Spirit of God, and this is the only assurance of God's salvation. So just the fact of us being an elect nation is nothing. So see, these are some of the things, some of the, the, the questions perhaps that he is anticipating as he is beginning into this portion of God's word. They possess the salvific promises. But Paul is saying, and he's going to bring this all to a head. He's going to bring it all together. He doesn't, he doesn't say really much of anything as far as faith in Christ now, but that's where he's headed. He's going to head right there. This isn't good enough. What is good enough and what will give you assurance of salvation is faith in the one whom the law pointed to. He's going to get there. He's not there yet. He's still anticipating the criticisms. He's still elaborating further uh, that the Jews would understand that they too are under the judgment of God. So what's the advantage of the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Yes, you have the salvific promises. But 
The covenant was not simply made with the Jews just for them to have some kind of an outward conformity to God's law, but it was to operate through faith. That's how it was supposed to be done. They, they were called to be God's people and to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and being. They were called to obey Him, but the obedience that they were rendering us to Him was based on their faith and belief in Him. It was based on His redemption of them. It was to operate through faith. One theologian, he says it in this way, giving an analogy. He says, suppose the traveler wants to take a car on a long journey. He rents a vehicle that has a solid reputation, but he supplies no fuel. Can the traveler reasonably claim the car is defective when it does not move? The engineer designed the car to operate with fuel. Likewise, God designed the covenant to operate through faith. It was to operate through faith, not simply works of the law and obedience. It was faith. And that's where Paul in the last chapter was emphasizing that the uncircumcised man is counted to be circumcised as God's covenant people, the true Jew, regardless if he's actual Jew or not, because of his faith. He's performing the things of the law as a result of his faith. Now the advantage itself, Paul says, is great in every respect. You know, considering the things that he said in chapter 2, it's like, what's the advantage? You would almost think he would say, there really isn't one. Because since you guys have the law, or we have the law, since Paul is a Jew himself, uh, we're held more accountable and our condemnation will be greater. So there's really no advantage. But he doesn't say that. He says the advantage is great in every respect. And he says, first of all, or chiefly, or above all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. This was the advantage of the covenant people of God. Again, it was to operate through faith, not just having a knowledge of God, not just operating according to an outward conformity in order to please God. It was that God had, he had directly disclosed himself to this people. He had revealed himself to this people above every other nation on earth. No other nation on earth had the, the kind of revelation of the God who is the only God as what Israel did. That's why they, they elaborate in, in the book of Deuteronomy. What other nation is like this one that has a God so near when we call upon him? Or has such righteous laws as these that we've been given? So the advantage was great. They received the oracles of God, and that's just a general way of, of speaking of God's word, the entirety of the Old Testament. They received the oracles of God, and by doing so, they received an understanding of his will, of the mind of God, of the wisdom of God, of the promises of God, of the salvation of God. The very character of God is put on display for them not only through the prophets, but in the scripture, through the miracles they saw. The advantage was great that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They received his word. This knowledge was entrusted to them, but they were also to respond in trust and faith. And you see the times that they didn't. And the, <clears throat> when you're reading in the Old Testament, it's not as if God, and this is, this is so interesting to me to even see this particular criticism being uh, brought up to begin with because the Jews understood very clearly through the Old Testament scripture that any time that they were disobedient that God brought judgment. So it shouldn't be a surprise. Did God ever cast them off? No. 
They were still his people, and God rendered judgment based on God's faithfulness to the covenant. God told him before, you obey, you have blessing. You disobey, I'm going to bring judgment. And so God being the faithful God, when they were obedient, he brought blessing. When they were disobedient because he's faithful to the covenant, he brought judgment. So this isn't something new. You see that that whole cycle, even in the book of Judges, when they would go after other gods and they would serve other gods. God would chastise them, he would judge them. Eventually they would call back to the Lord to save them. The Lord would raise up a judge and deliver them. It was a constant cycle. So, so what comes with covenant? What comes with the covenant of God? It comes with blessing and it comes with judgment. So that in itself should teach the people that even though they are the covenant people of God, the elect nation of God, that does not mean that every single person who was counted as a Jew or an Israelite was actually saved. Because there are numerous examples within the Old Testament of people who served other gods, which is an indicator that they were not regenerate. They were not regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. They did not have the circumcision of the heart that is brought about by the Spirit of God. So it's so interesting to me that that would even be an issue. Like, how can God judge us? He's always been faithful to his covenant, and his covenant rests on blessing and curses. So there are numerous examples that the covenant has both dimensions to it. So simply because they received the oracles of God did not mean that that they were exempt from their moral responsibility to the Lord. They had a special privilege having, having the oracles of God. They were entrusted with it. They were the vehicle through which God would bless the nations. What a status that they had. And as of right now, I'm saying had in the past tense. I'm not implying that God has done away with them. That's not what I'm implying. I'm just saying based within that particular time frame and the first covenant and everything specifically that dealt with them, no inclusion of the Gentiles yet, they had the advantage over everyone. So they, they had the oracles of God. They were entrusted with that. They were to respond with trust and faith. They received the salvific promises of God. God promised that he would bless Abraham's seed. So what happens when they don't believe? Does that mean then that because some don't believe, as those whom Paul is addressing, we don't believe specifically perhaps in, in the Messiah in which Paul has no doubt preached to them. So since some di didn't believe, does that mean that God's uh, salvific promises have been done away too, that God is going to be unfaithful. And that's the question that comes next. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? They possess the saving promises, and some do not believe. And since they do not believe, they don't receive the salvific promises of God. Does that mean that God will not fulfill his salvific promises to his people? And what Paul says is an emphatically, God forbid. May it never be. Let God be found true, though every man found a liar. Now, what's he implying? This is where I have a, a serious problem with 
especially when it comes to Reformed theology, more covenant theology, that those of the opposing views will charge the covenant the- theologians with replacement theology as if the church has replaced Israel. The church is a Gentile entity. Israel is out of the way, and it's replaced. That's why I have such a problem, because a passage is like this that would say otherwise. I personally don't know of any particular Reformed theologian that would say that the church has replaced Israel. The very thing that we find within the scripture, as we talked about last Lord's Day, is that the church is, is Israel, Jews, and Gentiles. Now, how do we say that? We say just like we did last week. Because he just said that the one who is physically uncircumcised, and that can only be a Gentile, but who keeps the law of God is counted as circumcised. And he goes on to say, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Remember, he tore down the wall of partition. He took both groups. He made them into one new man. And what's the one new man that we find throughout the pages of the New Testament? But the church. The church is not just some Gentile entity. It began with God's people, God's elect people, the nation itself. It began with Jews. It continues to this day to be made up of Jews and Gentiles. That was at seminary, at the Master Seminary, with a gentleman whose name was Minnow. He had a really long name. We couldn't pronounce it, so it was Minnow. Very nice man. He even made me eggs and bacon. Yeah. A Jewish man, a Jewish Christian, making me bacon. It was kind of interesting because he said, uh, do you want some eggs? I said, are you sure you're okay with that? We were over at their little their house where they were staying right behind the seminary. He's like, yeah, I'll make you some eggs. He said, do you want bacon? I said, bacon? He's like, yeah, I'll make you some bacon. I'm like, I like bacon. <laughs> uh, I'll take some bacon, Sure. And he whipped it right up. He and his, he, the other guy that was uh, staying with him there, his name was Alexei. And he was, he was a Jewish man from Russia. But Menno has his, his church in Jerusalem. And he is ministering among his own people. And people are being converted. So it's not as if the church is a Gentile entity. It is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And it continues to be that. And I'm not going to elaborate uh, any further as of right now. I'm just not ready to do that. But I am leaning towards the view that at God's appointed time, at some point in the future, that you will see a great revival among the Jewish people because God is faithful. So God is not unfaithful. To remove his salvific promises that he made. He is still fulfilling it. And perhaps to a greater extent. And that's where Romans 9 through 11 come into play. It may be a specific remnant. As what he says in chapter 11. But who knows how big a remnant is. But God isn't done with them yet. And to simply affirm. What the scripture says. That even Gentiles are counted as. Being Israel according to the promise is not replacement theology. It is in line with what we find. Otherwise, Paul would say, now to my Jewish audience, I have a certain program for you that God has told me about. 
For you Gentiles, I have a certain program for you that God has told me about. No. It's Jews and Gentiles. We are all within the family of God. So no, God is not unfaithful. They, they still receive the salvific promises, but the salvific promises that are made are, are made and, and demand faith. And that faith is given by the Lord, by the circumcision of the heart, which is done by the Spirit. So in view of the sovereignty of God and the election of individuals by the circumcision of the heart, these are some of the things then that are coming uh, from Paul's pen here to, to speak upon. But before he gets there, in order to emphasize this truth that just because some do not believe does not nullify the faithfulness of God, God is always faithful. He does not lie. What he says will come to pass, and that's why he gives that emphatic, may it never be that you would think this. God forbid that you would think this, but let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And then he quotes Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. I want you to hold your place here and let's flip to Psalm 51 and that way we can see the context here. Psalm 51, we will begin in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 4. <clears throat> but this is, of course, the psalm that David has written after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he has had her husband murdered, after he has been approached by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan gives him the story of the rich man who steals the poor man's lamb. What's going to be done with this man, he says to David. That man deserves to die, is what David said. And then Nathan says to David, thou art the man. You are the man. And so David pens this prayer asking God to forgive him for his great sin. And so here's what he says. Beginning of verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, what is it then? Now, Paul is quoting from most likely because it is a little different here in Romans. He's most likely quoting from the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament. But what is he saying? Even David acknowledged that when he had sinned against the Lord, that God was justified in any punishment that was given. You're justified in that. And when you're looking at this from the Greek Septuagint, or the Greek rendering here in Romans 3, he's basically saying that you may stand approved in your sayings and be the victor, as in coming off in a, as a superior in a judicial sense is the, is the meaning here, and come, and come off as the victor in your case, uh, in the case of judgment against me, is the idea. So if David, Israel's greatest king, acknowledges before the Lord that he deserved judgment, and if God did render judgment, it was just. And God did. If you read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the baby that was conceived, uh, 
The baby died. And it was because of David's sin. Maybe it was 2 Samuel 13. But, but even David says, you're just in doing that. You're just in, in, in rendering judgment against me because I have sinned. And so the point being that Paul is using this to say, you all are asking the question that just because some don't believe and God renders judgment, that God is somehow nullifying his promise. But look at David. David sinned greatly against the Lord. And just because he had the covenant status that you do, does not mean that David said, well, I have your covenant status as, as being your people. I don't deserve anything. David acknowledged, I deserve to be punished for this, and you are just if you render it to me. That's the point of quoting Psalm 51. To vindicate the name of God. God brings judgment against his covenant people. He's just in doing so because they've broken the law. That's the emphasis. And that's where that, that, that's exactly what the, the Apostle Paul is trying to get across is that you have broken the law. So the charge would not God's judgment on the faithlessness of the Jews make God faithless as well, basically is what it's saying. He promised to be faithful. So if he's going to render judgment, does that call into question his faithfulness? And the answer again is no. John Stott, he gives a bit of a paraphrase to this, of this section of Romans 3. And he writes it out like this. If some, if some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? If God's people are unfaithful, does that necessarily mean that he is? And the response then is... May it never be. That's the response. Now, vindicating God's name, vindicating God's righteous judgment against sin, whether it's from Jew or Gentile. So you have, you have him addressing Israel's special status, and now he's addressing more criticisms to the gospel itself, including the charge of antinomianism. Now listen how this says here. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So if by my sin it magnifies the righteous character of God, by my sin, why is he displeased with that? And that's where Paul's going to address this later in chapter 6. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? God forbid. That's going to be the answer. But this is again where he's beginning into some of these, uh, some of these criticisms against, against the gospel. Now, most likely he is not referring to a Jewish man in particular who is actually believing this because the Jews were the legalist. But as one theologian said, the twin sister of legalism is antinomianism. So if you're not keeping our standard, Paul, then surely... You must be an antinomian. And so addressing that, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is the God who inflicts wrath, the, the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And he's speaking in human terms. It's an absurd, it's an absurd criticism to begin with. What does he answer with again? May it never be. 
to his Jewish countrymen, if this is what you think that I'm saying, how can God even judge the world? Because he's going to judge the world and he's going to punish sin, so it's not as if he's going to give them a pass. He's not going to give you one either. He's not unrighteous for rendering judgment because sin is, is, is offensive to God. Paul is maintaining this. It's not a carefree kind of a thing, perhaps, as what his Jewish critics are rendering against him. It's not a free-for-all. Paul acknowledges that God is righteous when he judges, and he will judge sin. It is offensive to him. He is the faithful God. He is the holy God, etc. Maybe the Jews that he is writing to there in Rome had heard the charges against him. And he's been preaching for probably close to 20 years about this time. Surely word has gotten back. And he's going to address the Jews when he does get to Rome in Acts chapter 28. And I'm in these chains because of the hope of Israel. But may it never be. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? He just acknowledged, Paul did, that God is going to judge the world and God is going to judge his covenant people. So how can you say that I'm an antinomian? But connecting verse 7 from the previous ones there, again, same line of questioning here, same criticism, but if through my lie... The truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Same scenario. But it's beginning here. It's given us just a little bit of a taste of what he's going to go over later in chapter 9. Because he's saying the very similar things. How can he find fault? Or who resists his will? In chapter 9, if it, if it takes the circumcision of the heart, Paul, if this is what you're saying, it takes the circumcision of the heart in order to have full assurance of salvation. And we Jews are just as corrupt as the Gentiles as to what you're saying. And the only way we can receive the promises is by divine sovereign choice. Then how does he find fault? Especially if our sin is magnifying his righteousness. How can he inflict wrath? And you can see that. You can see them saying that to Paul. Okay, you're saying everything that we believed is nonsense. You're telling us that he's going to render judgment on us because we don't have the circumcision of the heart? How can he find fault if it's by divine sovereignty that you receive the circumcision of the heart. And this is where Paul would say in Romans 9, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Now, how do the two go together, though? That's the question. How can God still hold his covenant people morally responsible by not exercising faith in him, though to do so is an active work of God in the heart? How does that happen? This is the same dilemma that you find even today. People have this problem with divine sovereignty and human freedom. With the doctrine of election and predestination, they have a serious problem. Well, if you're saying that people can't believe unless they receive the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit anyway, 
then how can he find fault? Obviously, he made them that way. Well, the answer to that is no, he did not make them that way. The scripture affirms that God made man upright and he sought out other devices. Was it by the sovereign decree of God that the fall happened? Absolutely. Did God cause the fall to happen? No, not primarily. Using secondary means, yes. Otherwise, it would not have happened. Now, because man sinned, because Adam and Eve sinned, that original sin is now imputed to all his posterity. All mankind thereafter were born with corrupt nature. So we are held responsible because we sinned in Adam. And so our rebellion is by our own doing. And so we make choices according to the very nature that we have. We only have a fallen nature. We only have a corrupt nature. And so we make decisions based on our desires. So we can hear the call of the gospel. We can hear... Come to Christ and choose Christ. And we can say no, because that is consistent with our nature. And we make the decision to do so. And we are held morally responsible that we have denied the gospel or rejected the gospel because we sinned and rebelled in Adam. We would have done the same thing. So we are held morally responsible for our choices. And it takes the sovereign hand of God in order to enable us to come whereby he gives us a new heart and he gives us new desires. And then we make decisions according to our new desires and we call upon Christ and we love Christ and we're devoted. But just because it is by the sovereign hand of God that we come to faith does not negate human responsibility and moral responsibility. Antinomianism removes human responsibility. Hyper-Calvinism removes human responsibility. The two are true. It is only by the sovereign electing purposes of God that any come to faith and you are morally accountable when you deny it or when you deny the gospel. The decisions you make are consistent with your nature. You make them. God doesn't make them for you. When you deny the gospel, that's you denying the gospel. When you reject the Lord, that's you rejecting the Lord. To choose the ultimate good, which is him, is contrary to your very nature. And that's why you hear men like R.C. Sproul who would say in the final analysis, if salvation was left up to men, none would ever come. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So how can he find fault? He finds fault because you are morally responsible for your rejection. That's where Paul is going. You are held morally responsible because you reject. And sin is offensive to the Lord, as R.C. Sproul says, it's cosmic treason. And he will render justice, and he is just when he does so. And God will judge the world in righteousness because he is the righteous judge. So there is no room here to say, one, the antinomian who says, well, because we're under grace and very similar to how they charged Paul here, let us do evil that good may, that good may come from it. And the good here is that God's Righteous character is put on display, his, his mercy and his grace. It's almost as if you find, and you see it in movies all the time, God will forgive me, that's his job. 
That's the attitude of an antinomian. And then you have the attitude on the other spectrum of the hyper-Calvinist who says, basically, what is, is it's just going to be that way. And so if I have this particular sin in my life that I'm struggling with, I might as well just do it because obviously God has ordained for me to do it. And both are a front to the gospel and malign the very character of God. So while the legalists are saying one thing, accusing Paul of antinomianism, Paul is saying no. God is faithful to his covenant. God is faithful to his promises. And then he's going to lead them into this is how he's faithful. And this is how you, being the covenant people, receive the covenant promises through the one that the Old Testament the priesthood, the feast, the covenant itself, the law, everything pointed to. He's going to get there, but he's not quite there yet. But this is where we know where he's going. We know that this is where he's heading. We know that these are things that he is eventually going to address later on in the book of Romans to make it very clear that God is never pleased when we sin. Is it possible for our sin to lead us to a greater appreciation of God and that is his gracious character will be magnified? Yeah. Yeah. In the times in which you sin, in which you, in which you recognize that you deserve God's judgment on you because of what you did, and maybe you're waiting for it. God is going to have something to happen, I know, because of this over here. I, I said this. I watched something I shouldn't. I said something I shouldn't. I've, I've done something I shouldn't. And we're waiting on it. And what then do you get? But then you get grace. You don't get chastisement when you, when you should. Instead, you get grace. And then what does that do? One thing it doesn't do or shouldn't do to the genuine believer is, okay, nothing happened, so maybe I can do it again. Instead, recognizing that God's grace was upon us when we deserve justice moves our hearts even more to say thank you. Thank you that you are gracious because I know what I deserve. I know I de and you would be just in doing so. We would be the same, the same thing as David. Against you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight and you're just. You're just when you bring judgment. But thank you that you were gracious to me. So does our sin cause us sometimes to flee more to the feet of Christ? Yes. Does our sin, especially against the backdrop of, of God's righteous character, does it, does it magnify for us the, the, the entirety of his, of, of his gracious nature and love and mercy? Yeah. But not so that we would continue and think that this is how he's always going to be. It's his job to be gracious. It's his job to forgive. No. That's where Paul says... God forbid we have that kind of a view. The only assurances that we have of any favor with God is through Christ. That's where Paul's going. That's where you know he's going. You know that's where he's headed. We're not antinomians. We recognize that the law has its place. And Paul's going to say that too. We establish the law. I would have not known sin had it not been for the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. 
And that's where you come into um, not only the threefold division of the law that is talked about, but the three uses of the law. The one is to show us our sin and to lead us to Christ. The second is for civil use in order to restrain evil in society. And the third is that it gives us uh, a compass, if you will, a direction on how we can walk before the Lord in a way that's honoring to him. It says Martin Luther had said something to the effect of God uses the law as a rod to beat me to Christ. But then he gives it to me as a stick to walk me through life. So the law is good and it has its place, not as a means of gaining salvation or favor with God. It has to be that these things are done out of faith and trust. That's where Israel failed. It's through faith and trust that brings us into the salvation of God. So we're not antinomians. We're not hyper-Calvinist. We do not believe that what will be will be and that we have no moral responsibility or that things cannot change. We recognize God does not change, but we also recognize that prayer does change things. R.C. Sproul had said that very thing. He says, prayer does not change God's mind. But if you ask the question, does prayer change things? And the answer is yes. Because within the sovereignty of God, God uses the prayers of his people in order to bring about his will. So we, we do pray that God would change the hearts of others. We do pray that God would change circumstances. And pray that God would change us and conform us even more to the image of his son. We pray for these things. These things are good to pray for. And God grants the prayers of his people according to his will. So what we must maintain then, first and foremost, is our faith is in Christ. We recognize that God is faithful to all of his salvation promises that he made to his covenant people in the Old Testament, that we are privileged to come into the same grouping as them, to be regarded as the Israel of God, is what Paul says in Galatians 6, and he's talking about the entire church. We don't take it for granted as he's going to go into Romans 11, but we recognize that God is going to be faithful to his covenant. God is going to be gracious, and he does so for both Jew and Gentile by his only son, Christ. Faith in Christ is what is necessary. It is brought about by the Spirit of God. If you wonder and have difficulty with whether or not you're elect, that's always a question, too. Well, how can people be assured that they're the elect of God, if that's what you're saying? Because otherwise, they wouldn't want to be. It's really simple. Otherwise, they would not want to come to Christ if they were not the elect of God. So the very fact that you have desire to call upon Christ in faith and to walk in faith and you're worried when things don't go right in your life that you've sinned against the Lord and how is it that the Lord can love you in, in a, on account of what it is that you did and you're asking the Lord to forgive you. These are all characteristics of those who are genuinely converted by the Spirit of God because you have that godly repentance in you that drives you to Christ. As one of the Puritans had said when he was beckoning sinners to come to Christ, he says, sinners flee to Christ and if you perish, you perish in his arms. We run to the very feet of Christ. That is evidence that you are genuinely converted. So we don't, we don't have to wonder if we are the elect of God in that sense. Where's the object of your faith? Christ? That's characteristic of saving faith. 
He's my one and only hope. And Paul will get there with his audience. But for now, that's where we need to leave off with. We're not antinomians. We're not fatalists or hyper-Calvinists or determinists. We recognize that first and foremost, God is pleased with faith that he produces in us. And he's pleased with a life that is lived out in faith, which is living in accordance with his commands. That's where we need to be, church. These accusations are false. They're absurd. But Paul had to address them, too, just as we do in our own day. But God gives us the wisdom through his word to answer those critics, to emphasize salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and that he produces in us the, sanctify, the sanctifying life thereafter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that our salvation is not our own doing, that it is all of you. We have no part in it. As I believe Dr. Sproul had said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We are morally responsible for the choices that we make. We were morally responsible in the times of our life in which we rejected the gospel. But thank you, Father, that you had grace. You extended grace to us. You had mercy on us. And that by the sovereign hand of the Spirit of God, he changed our desires. He changed our very nature and gave us the ability to call upon Christ in faith. This was not our doing, but yours. Thank you for that sovereign work in our hearts, giving us the privilege of knowing you and of serving you. Father, may, may all the days of our life be pleasing in your sight, that we would do what is good and right, but we need you at every moment, at every step, to keep us close, to hold, to hold us, to preserve us, because we are prone to wander. Father, we thank you again. For Christ, his work, and that he did everything necessary, nothing for us to do. What other God is there like you, so gracious and loving? Father, be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's children said.